Amen. Amen. Please be seated. So the title of this sermon is, Is Jesus Really God? Is He Really God? Last week, the sermon was on, is, Was Jesus, Is Jesus Really Human? And Does It Matter? Today it's on, Is He Really God? And Does It Matter? And of course, it matters. So, let's get going. Is He God? Well, that wasn't a question, but thank you. All right. It was a question. It was rhetorical. Is he God? Did we get this thing right? Are, Are we sure? Back there in AD 25 at the Council of Nicaea, with Athanasius kind of leading the way for the Trinitarian view and the deity and humanity of Christ, are we sure they got it right? They didn't even have Bible software then. They didn't have many books or articles to read. They were standing on virtually no one's shoulders with copies of the Bible that didn't have spaces between words, no books, chapters, and verses. How they did what they did is beyond me. But are we sure? Did they get it right? I'm happy to tell you, I'm going to show you from the Bible, that yes, the Bible clearly, unmistakably, and powerfully affirms the deity of Jesus Christ. He is God. And the Bible teaches that it matters whether we believe that or not. And it matters whether He is God or not. Just as we saw last week, it matters that He was human so that He could be a merciful and faithful high priest and a mediator for His people so that He could stand in our stead. And by the same token, it matters that He is divine. It matters that He is deity. It matters that He is God. For only a God-man could absorb the wrath of God, which all we fallen sinners deserve, absorb it into His own holy soul, and transfer His righteousness to our record when we believe upon Him. He had to be man, and He had to be God. And the Bible plainly, unmistakably, clearly teaches that He was God. Here's how we're going to proceed. First, I'm going to give you a quick tour. I'm going to give you a quick tour of the Bible's teaching on the fact that He is God. I'm going to keep my foot on the pedal when I go through that quick teaching. Here's how the Bible teaches us He's God. We're going to go fast in that one, all right? I'm going to try to anyway. Might get stuck in a few verses. And then we're going to go, we're going to land in, our last passage we'll look at, and we'll stay there for a while, is Hebrews chapter 1 where we see he's God, and here's why it matters. So last week we were in Hebrews chapter 2, which says he's human, and here's why it matters, because your salvation depends upon it. And this week we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 1, eventually, after a quick tour of other verses. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 1, which says, and he is God, he is deity, he is divine, and here's why that matters. Without that, you would yet be in your sins. So last week, he's human. This week, He's divine. Are you ready for a quick tour? Say yes. Yes. Thank you. Okay, a quick tour. First, the tour is going to be in two parts. First, I'm going to give you overt statements in the Bible, overt statements to the effect that He is God, that Jesus Christ of Nazareth was God in the flesh and still is. And then we're going to look at 
covert statements that indicate, without saying it bluntly right out front, overtly, they indicate he was in fact God. So we're going to pile up a little pile of overt statements and covert statements and then wind up in Hebrews chapter 1. Are you ready for some overt statements? Here we go. The first one we already looked at, the Word was God and the Word became flesh. Now, if we only had that whole verse in the whole Bible, that would be enough. But it's such an important doctrine to be held by the people of God that God has given us plentiful evidence, lots of passages, lots of verses, lots of lines of reasoning to indicate to us that our Savior was God and is God in the flesh. But that verse alone is plain enough. Like, which part of that did somebody not understand? He was with God, so that's interesting. You wind up with the Trinity ultimately from that two of the members of the Trinity, but, and the word that was with God became flesh, took on flesh. He became human. So that's very clear from that verse alone, but there are plenty more. Titus chapter 2 and verse 13, Paul writes, Paul, who had been a Pharisee, Paul, who was a monotheist to his core, Paul, who literally set out to kill Christians in part for their blasphemy that Jesus of Nazareth could be God and could be Savior, that Paul met Jesus, was radically changed, and he writes later in his life, Titus 2.13, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, lest there be any mistake made here, you're not to read that as if there are two people involved there. There's our great God, and then there's our Savior, Jesus Christ. No, it's, it's one and the same. In fact, if I remember right on the spur of the moment, the definite article is there. It is the great God and Savior. One article, two descriptions, same person. So Jesus is here called by the Apostle Paul, former rabbi, former anti-Christian. He is our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ our Lord. Again, Paul in Romans chapter 9 speaks of our Savior as Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Romans 9 5. God over all. Jesus Christ is God over all, blessed forever. Then in Philippians 2 6, we read of Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God. Now, pause there. The word form is the Greek word morphe from which we get like morphology or I don't know what other, morphine related to that? I don't know. I should have looked it up. It just now came to me. But anyway, it's the form. So if you have the form of God, Jesus is that form. He's the same thing. This is an affirmation of deity. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality. Jesus has equality with God. Paul teaches us that, but he didn't count it a thing to be grasped. That is, in anticipating his incarnation, he didn't say, no, I can't go down there and appear to them like a mere man. I can't go down there and have them think I'm just a human. I'm God. No, he didn't think that a thing to be grasped. He was willing to let go of that. He didn't let go of being God. He let go of them recognizing him as God, and he allowed himself to just appear like a human. But he was God. He's in the form of God, and he had equality with God, though he didn't count it a thing to be grasped. 1 John, the Apostle John, makes it very clear, 1 John 5.20, where he says, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. I mean, 
to, to Jehovah's Witness friends who have been taught that Jesus was not God, he was the first thing that God created in order to bring us salvation and so on. Uh, we, we love you, uh, we're praying for you, but we just want you to know you've been duped. The Bible clearly teaches Jesus Christ is divine and human. He is God in the flesh. And then another verse, that, another overt verse that shows us he's God is the Colossians 1. First in verse 15 and then in verse 19, he is the image of the invisible God. So if you see him, you've seen God. He's going to say that later. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Now, I would never say that about me. In me, all the fullness of God dwells. You would take me out and stone me, and rightly so. Take the most holy saint upon the planet, which I'm sure isn't me, and you would never say of them, all the fullness of God dwells in them. For John, a Hebrew, to make such an affirmation about Jesus Christ, it is plain he understood Jesus to be deity. It is plain he understood Jesus to be God. So there's a quick tour of the overt statements, and they should put our doubts to rest if we have any. You can believe, you should believe, and you must believe Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. So those are some of the overt statements. Now let me give you some of the covert statements or covert indicators that Jesus is God. They don't come out as plainly, but they still indicate the same thing. They are first, in the Bible, Jesus does the works of God. Things that only God can do, Jesus does. Jesus is creator. He created the heavens and the earth. He's sustainer. He sustains the heavens and the earth. We're also told that he forgives sin, which gave the Pharisees an absolute fit. And they said, this man blasphemes, for only God can forgive sin. And Jesus did not say, oh, pardon me, I, I got that wrong. Obviously, I'm not God. I guess I really can't forgive sin. No, he stuck with it. He can forgive sins. He's God. He raised the dead and will raise all the dead at the last day. He will judge the living and the dead. Jesus does the works that only God can do, ergo he is God. Secondly, in our covert statements, Jesus receives worship as God. Can you think of the passage? There's one that's the famous passage. It's John chapter 20. Who's the guy? It's Thomas. It's doubting Thomas. Unless I see the holes in the hands, unless I see the, where the spear went in the side, I will not believe Jesus appeared to him. And Thomas says, my Lord and my God now, that was not an exclamation. He wasn't saying like, OMG. No, he was saying, you, Jesus, you are my Lord, and you are my God. Jesus receives worship as God. And furthermore, Jesus in the Bible has divine attributes, characteristics of deity. He is described as eternal, omnipresent. He's everywhere. Omniscient, he knows all. Omnipotent, he's all-powerful. Immutable, he never changes. None of those are true of you and me. None of those are true of any human. They were all true of Jesus Christ in the Bible. He's God. He has divine attributes. Furthermore, Jesus has equal standing with God the Father. We see this especially in the baptismal formula he gave us to use to recite when we baptize people. We baptize people in the name. So this is one name. It is not three names. 
It is one name. We baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's one God. That's one name. You would never baptize in the name of God the Father, God the Son, and Pastor Stan Gray. It just wouldn't work. Or any other human, or cat, or dog, or horse on the planet. But you have baptismal, baptismal um, formula is in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Jesus has equal standing with God. Finally, for the covert indicators, well, maybe this isn't so covert, Jesus claimed deity. On at least three separate occasions, Jesus came right out and claimed to be God. In John chapter 10 and verse 30, he simply said, I and the Father are one. Would you say that? No. But Jesus said that, which would be blasphemy if it were not so. I and the Father are one. In uh, John 14 and verse 7, he said to doubting Thomas, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Now, Jesus is not saying that he is the Father, but if you've seen Jesus, that's identical to seeing the Father. He's seen the Father. And he says a similar thing a little bit later to Philip. Philip says, show us the Father and it'll be enough. It's like, I just have one little beanie request. Just show us God. That'll be enough. Just show us the Father and that'll be enough. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? I would never utter such words. Have you been, Andy, have you been with me so long and you, you don't know me? And if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And you're going to go, right, let's head out in the parking lot. You need a bruise in Heartland. Jesus claimed deity. So that was a quick tour. Did you make it through? That was like rapid systematic theology 101 blunt to the point. But now we're going to go to Hebrews. Now, I should just let the passage convince you of this itself, but I'm going to do a little pre-convincing. What we're going to see in Hebrews chapter 1 is sublime. It's amazing. It's like, how long did it take him to figure out how he wanted to write that? How many drafts did he throw away before he said, that's the one, and God says, yep, and that's the one that's my word. It's just amazing, Hebrews chapter 1. Let's begin, and we're going to see the deity of Christ in it. We're going to slow down now, pedal off the metal. We're going to take our time. I had a Jeep before I got the Ford pickup that I have now, which I love. I had a Jeep before that, a Jeep Wrangler. It was lifted, had 33s on it, pipes, cold air intake, some cool stuff on it. And that thing, you could put it down in granny, granny, you know, low four-wheel drive and then first gear. And literally, you could get on a steep grade like that, take your foot off the gas, and it would just walk up that grade. That's the speed we're going through Hebrews chapter 1 at. We're just foot off the gas, walking up the grade, up toward the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago, and at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. 
So the last Old Testament prophet had been 400 years ago, and the earliest, earliest Old Testament prophet, who knows, what's the date of Enoch? Are you a young earth? Are you an old earth? I don't know. Who knows how, how long ago that was? And then there was Moses, one of the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. Then there were the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. Then the minor prophets, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, all these Old Testament prophets. And I would even squeeze in John. John the Baptist was the last of the Old Testament prophets, but he's not referenced here. But the author says, look, long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our people, our fathers, by those prophets. And they were all like, yeah, that's us. We're Hebrews. Those are our people. God spoke to the prophets. And the problem in the book of Hebrews, let me just squeeze this in right here, the problem that the author addresses over and over and over and over is that there were some who are thinking of leaving Christ. So he addresses the whole group. I'm convinced of better things of you, things that accompany salvation. But then he says, but there are some from among you, Greek terms, tis ex humon, sometimes just tis, some, some from among you. He uses that phrase over and over in different forms when he turns and addresses the ones who are considering apostasy the ones who are considering leaving Christ because it's gotten kind of difficult following Christ. There's persecution. There's heat following Christ. I think I might leave him. I might count the blood of the covenant by which I was sanctified as being common blood, just nothing special, not God in the flesh blood, just plain old human blood. I might trample underfoot the covenant of grace and the Savior. So they're thinking of going back. And the whole purpose, or one of the major purposes of the book, is to address those people and convince them not to go back. So he's starting with what they want to go back to. They want to leave Jesus and go back to the prophets. So when he says, long ago there were the prophets, they're all going, yeah, that's where we're headed. We're headed back to those prophets. You got that right. Then he hits them with this, verse 2. But in these last days. Pause there. 2020, people are asking the question, and people have asked me the question, do you think we're in the last days? Actually, yes. I think we've been in them for 2,000 years, because the author of Hebrews, and there are other passages that say the same thing, he said in his day, standing on his ground, these are the last days. And the entire time period from the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ in the Bible is called the last days or these last days. So yes, we're in the last days. Well, okay, what I really wanted to know is do you think we're at the very last of the last of the last days? All right. But God in these last days, there were the former days, the Old Testament prophets, 400 years of silence. Now, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, by his son. And Jesus Christ is contrasted with the prophets and is superior to the prophets in this way. They were humans. Jesus is one who has of the quality of son. There's no definite article. There's no the on it. He's not called the son. It's one who is son of the character and quality of son. Here's the idea. Suppose you're a king and you have ambassadors doing your business and speaking for you in other countries, but they're not listening to your ambassadors and you send another and you send another and they send them back home and they're not listening to them and you say, I know what I'll do. I'll get their attention. 
I'm sending them my son. And when your son shows up in their kingdom, they go, ooh, this is serious now. We better pay attention. This is his son. He's not just sending ambassadors anymore. That's the point the author of Hebrews is making here. God has one-upped the prophets. This is way better than the prophets. You better listen to this one more than even the prophets. You better really pay This is one who is of the quality of son. In these last days, God upped the ante. That was prophets. This is son. He is son. But it'll get better. Whom, let's read on, whom he appointed the heir of all things. He is heir. He is son, and as son, he is heir. He inherits everything. Some of you might be hoping, maybe you'll inherit something. Some of you, maybe you've already inherited something. He will inherit everything. He is the son who inherits the universe, son of God, king of kings. And not only is he appointed the heir of all things, but we also read, through whom also he, the father, created the world. Jesus is co-creator. So you want to, some from among you, some, you, you want to go back to the prophets. Those are better days. You want to leave Jesus and trample underfoot the Savior. Let me tell you who you're leaving here. You're leaving one who is God's son. You're leaving one who is God's heir. You're leaving one who is co-creator. You just think about that co-creator part. I'm not good at this stuff, so I had to do a little bit of digging this week. It wasn't hard. It didn't take long. Oh, I am good. I did know this part. When it says, through whom also he created the world, it's the Greek word, it's plural. It's ionos, meaning ages. It's not the physical planet, just this planet. It's everything. It's time and all that happens in time. So through the Son, God the Father created everything. Do you know how much everything there is? This is the part I had to do a little bit digging on. If you wanted to go from one end of the galaxy to the other end of the galaxy, it is, uh uh-oh, I'm in the wrong place. It is how far? It's, oh, I think I remember a number, but I'm not sure I have the right number. You know what I'm going to say right now? We'll get the right number later. It is a lot of light years. (laughs) It's like, you'd be out there a long time. The galaxy is huge. He created all that. You know what else he created? They say that, the most amazing thing we've found in the universe, the most intricate and carefully and wonderfully made thing in the universe is guess what? What, what is it? What is it? It's your brain. It's those three pounds of gray stuff. Some of you two and a half pounds, some of you four pounds. It's those three pounds of gray stuff in there. The human brain is the most amazing thing anybody has discovered, the most amazing thing anybody has seen. It has, I had to read this, Hundreds of billions of neurons, that's about as many stars as are in the Milky Way, neurons, tiny little cells, uh, hundreds of millions of them, interlinked through trillions of connections, and each of those billions of cells with trillions of connections contains in itself, each individual one, a vast electrochemical complex, a powerful microdata processing system. And all of that is going on in there right now. And he made that. 
So there's a definite contrast going on here. You guys want to go back to prophets? You want to leave the son for prophets? Do you know who you're leaving? He is all of these things, but now it gets even better. Now he's going to pull back the curtain. Now he's going to really flash the insignia of deity to us. He's going to invite us into a holy place. Hebrews 1 and verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God, which is to say he's God. Now this is language from the Son. He's using imagery. He's using an example from the Son. And he says, you know, you have the Son and then you have some light comes out of the Son. The light is still sun. It's sunlight. And Jesus is the light that comes out of the Godhead and came to earth and shone the light. He was the light of men. Jesus is to the Father and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, what sunlight is to the sun. He is the radiance, the effulgence, the shining forth, the bursting out with light of the glory of God. And... He is the exact imprint of his nature. So whatever is the exact nature of God, Jesus is that exact same nature. None of you are. Cats and dogs aren't. Jesus Christ alone was. He is the exact imprint. That's language from, now this is going to be anachronistic because they didn't have typewriters then, but it's like language from typewriters or whatever they had that would make a mark. I have, I have and I love a 1939 Royal. When I'm sitting at my desk, big screen in front of me, little keyboard there, trackpad, it's right here. And sometimes I use it and I have to type two fingers because the keys go down so far that I can't do it this way. So two fingers and I tape people letters on it sometimes and then sign it. And a little arm, you know this thing, right? You young people don't know this thing. When you push down the button, a little arm comes up, and if it's an L, it's got a backwards L, and that slaps this piece of uh, tape that's got ink in it, and that leaves a mark on the paper. And the mark is the exact imprint of what's on that little arm. In in their day, it might have been more like the wax thing. You're going to steal your letter, you melt the wax, you take the thing, and it's the exact imprint of what's there. That's the verbiage that that John is using here, or the author of Hebrews is using. He is the exact imprint of the Father's nature. So if the Father went on him, then you looked at Christ, you'd say, yep, exact. So you want to go back to prophets? This one's son. This one's heir. This one's co-creator. And this one is God. He is the effulgence of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature. He's God. And it gets even better. And he upholds the universe. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. How many of you think maybe you could uphold the universe? How many of you think you could hold up 100 pounds? He upholds the universe. That vast billions of light years of universe, it's like if these are his hands, it's in there. It's right there. It's just a little thing to him, and he's holding it up with his hands. But it's not even hands. This is like the coup de grace. 
He upholds the universe with a word. All he has to do is speak. There's such power. He didn't have to get in some big atomic weapon thing, you know, and create an explosion. No, he just says a word. And the universe continues to be. By the way, this, this might challenge your understanding of the universe. We contend toward deism. God made the universe, wound it up like a clock, sat it on the mantelpiece, and God walked away, and it's over there running. And natural laws, natural laws are what run everything. That's not the Bible's teaching at all, nor is that the view of any ancient peoples that we know of on the planet. They all had an understanding that the universe continues and functions because God continues it and functions it. So that everything that happens, that's God. God causes his sun to shine. God sends his rain. It's not that there are natural laws and the sun came up or the earth turned around, if you want to be precise. No, no, no. It's, it's God doing all these things actively. He is active in our universe and our world today. And it's Jesus as God who upholds the universe by his power. So he's radiance. He's exact imprint of God's nature, he upholds. Hey, I was right, here it is, 93 billion light years. You would have to travel at the speed of light for 93 billion years, and by the time you got there, the universe would have expanded a whole lot more, and you'd have to go some more years. It's incredible. He upholds it by a word. Not one of the Old Testament prophets was the radiance of the Father's glory. Not one of the Old Testament prophets was the exact imprint of his nature or his character. Not one of the Old Testament prophets was co-creator and upheld the universe by a word. Jesus calls time and matter into existence and keeps them in existence and works all things according to the counsel of his will in time and in space. And there's more, Hebrews 1.3. After making purification for sins, now you know what that is. That's his cross work. That's his atoning, substitutionary sacrifice of his own body on the tree in behalf of sinners. After making purification, he is purifier. You're not purifier. None of the prophets were purifier. None of the angels are purifiers. Jesus is in a very special category. He's a purifier, and only God can purify. Only God can cleanse sins. Only God can forgive sins. Only a, an omnipotent and omnipresent and all-powerful and omnipotent God could absorb the wrath of the Father in behalf of sinners. After making purification for sins, He is purifier. And get this, He sat down. What does that mean? That means it's done. I can rest. He has entered into his rest, the author of Hebrews will say later. It's done. On the cross, he said, it is finished. By the time he ascended to the Father and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, it's done. He's at rest. His cross work is done. Redemption is accomplished. It is done. And notice what seat he sits in at the right hand of the majesty on high. You ever going to sit in that seat? Any of the prophets going to sit in that seat? Moses going to sit in that seat? Jesus Christ sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is resting and he is reigning. 
None of the Old Testament prophets could do that. Only Christ can. And this is why it matters. If he is not God, he could not make purification for sins. If he is not God, he could not have then sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, resting and reigning at the right hand of God. So, what have we seen so far? He is Son, He is heir, he is co-creator, he is God, he is purifier, he is resting, he is reigning, and all of that in the first three verses of Hebrews. Talk about an opening salvo. It's just, the verses are insane. I, I imagine it this way. If you gathered up all the fireworks on the planet and all the other kinds of explosives and projectiles and missiles and bombs, if you put them all in one big pile and lit a match and they all went off at once, that's what just happened in Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. It's just insane how carefully written it is and how much light about the nature and the character of Jesus Christ and his relationship to the Father appears in those three verses. And that... (laughs) I'll remind you, is like his sermon introduction. I have beef with sermon intros nowadays. I really don't like a lot of sermon intros that I hear. It's like, bro, the intro is the porch. We want to get in the house. Your porch is bigger than your house. And... And it's not just that the porch is bigger, but your house is only 30 minutes long. Porch and house is only 30 minutes long. You spent the first 10 minutes telling me little stories that I didn't care about as if I needed those for you to get my attention. Listen, when I go to Fogo de Chon, that's how it's pronounced. It's not Fogo de Chow. It's Fogo de Chon. When, when I, and I've only been there once. But when I go there, they don't have to bring me candies to say, now we want to get you interested in our meat. I'm there for the meat. Forget the candy. Maybe I'll have that afterward. Just take me straight to the meat. Turn my card over. It's green. Start bringing the meat, right? When I go to hear a sermon, I'm like, I feel patronized. I, I feel embarrassed. It's so juvenile to, to do all the little cute stories. Now watch. Next week, I'll start the sermon with a story. I'm not saying it's wrong to have stories, but there's just too much of that. Why not just open up the Word and let it shine? He, and notice too, he doesn't hold back doctrine that will be unpopular with his hearers. He doesn't shave off the rough edges of God's truth. The very thing they're thinking, I don't know if I like that anymore. He could have said, oh, it's not as bad as you think. Let me just play it down a little here, and the prophets were really quite wonderful, and you can come in here and be part of our church. He doesn't do that. The problem they had, he hits them right between the eyes in the first three verses. So, I don't know if you've noticed, but I hardly ever have anything you could call a real sermon introduction anymore. And it's because I just, I'm old enough, I'm tired of that. I don't need to do that anymore. If we can't get their attention with God's word, we might be in trouble. Now, that's Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. 4 through 7 is Jesus compared to angels. We're going to skip that, but we're going to pick it up again at verse 8 because it's back to Jesus being God. Hebrews 1 and verse 8. So he's been talking about angels, angels this, angels that. He says this about angels. He says that about angels. They're ministering spirits set for those who are about to inherit salvation and on and on. But 
in contrast to first prophets, now angels, in contrast to those angels that you guys are into, in contrast to the angels that you're digging, but of the Son, He, the Father, says, and this is from Psalm 145. So here we have Psalm 145. Here's what God the Father says of God the Son in Psalm 145. The Father says to the Son, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. He's eternal. It's forever and ever and he's God, and he's the sovereign. He sits on a sovereign throne for eternity as God. And the Father says this to him, your throne, O God, is for ever and ever. You ever wonder, I wonder what the three members of the Trinity talked about in eternity past. Well, you've just been let in on a conversation. Here's the Father saying to the Son, you're going to have a throne, and your throne, O God, is forever and ever. You've been let in on inner Trinitarian conversation. And then it goes on to say, uh, the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Thank God there will finally be a scepter of uprightness. No government corruption no, you know, under the table, no paybacks, no, you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. No, it is a scepter, a rule, a reign of absolute righteousness, uprightness. That is the scepter of Christ's kingdom. Can't wait. Can't wait. But notice it's a scepter. He's sovereign in Hebrews 1. So the Father calls him God. The Father has a conversation with him as God. And the Father says, and you're the ruler, and you're eternal, and it's your kingdom. But there's more. This is taken from Psalm 102, the next verse, Hebrews 1. We're going to jump to verse 10, pardon me. Hebrews 1.10. And here's something more the Father says to the Son. And you, Lord laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Now, the really interesting thing about this verse is the Hebrew word used for Lord. The Father is speaking to the Son, and the Father calls the Son Lord, and the Hebrew word there is Yahweh, which is sometimes translated Jehovah, yod Hey vav Hey or yod Hey yod Hey wow Hey, depending on which version of Hebrew you took. The Father calls the Son Jehovah. The Father calls the Son Yahweh. The Father calls the Son God. You, Lord, you, God, laid the foundation of the earth. This is more inter-Trinitarian communication from Psalm 102. The heavens are the works of your hands. Go on to verse 11, please, Hebrews 1.11. They will perish. Just keep that in mind. Everything you see, Everything you hear, everything you smell, everything you touch, everything you want, everything you have will perish. Just keep that in perspective. They will perish. All of the eons that he made with all the stuff that's in them, that will perish at the last day. The great conflagration, all things burn with a fiery heat. And out of that, God creates a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness, the scepter of his kingdom, dwells. They will perish, but you remain. He is eternal. 
without beginning, without end. Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. This is what the Father is saying to the Son. And then he says, they, all the stuff you made, they will wear out like a garment. I noticed a pair of pants in my closet the other day. It was like way back in the end over there where I don't go. There's nothing over there. But there was a pair of jeans over there, and it had hold, they had holes in them. And they were my work jeans, and I'd forgotten about those work jeans over there. And I thought, I need to throw those away. They have holes in them. I know some of you like to wear things with holes in, but I'm a little old for that, all right? So I'm not doing the holes in my jeans thing. But they wear out. I didn't put those holes there. They wore out. And Jesus says, this universe is like an old pair of jeans. It's wearing out. And he goes on, verse 12, please. I love this. Like a robe, you will roll them up. How many of you roll up clothes? I roll up clothes. I roll up t-shirts. So I get my t-shirts out of the basket and I lay it down on the bed and I fold this part over and the sleeve back and then that part over and the sleeve back. And then you go from the bottom and roll it all the way up and then open the drawer and there's the white ones and the gray ones and the black ones. I dig that. I, need, I know some of you are like, you take the basket and dump it on the floor and that's find what you need the next day. But I need some order. I need to look in there and there's order and things are neat and so on. I roll up things. Like a robe, you'll roll them up. He'll take the universe and it's that big to him. And he goes, shh. Like a garment, they will be changed. You take off one shirt, you put on another shirt, it's changed. The, uh, shirt. the universe is going to be changed. But you, this is the father to the son, you are the same and your years have no end. Whew. Hebrews chapter 1. It's just fireworks. So, is Jesus God? Yes, we've seen from Scripture overtly. We've seen from Scripture covertly. We've seen from Hebrews chapter 1, a masterful, majestic tour de force through the deity of Jesus Christ. So rest assured, our Christian forefathers, our Christian forebears, back in 325, got it right. Athanasius, the little squeaky scribe, he got it right. He quoted from some of these verses, too, out of Hebrews 1, in his defense of the deity of Christ. He got it right, and Orthodox Christians have gotten it right and had it right ever since. Jesus Christ is, last week's sermon, human, and Jesus Christ is this week's sermon, divine. He is God, and he is man, two natures perfectly commingled in one person for eternity. Two things I want to say to you in closing. Here's the first. Jesus is God, and you need him to be your God. He is God. At the last day, you will appear in his presence. You will know then with certainty, he's God. It's better to know that now. It's eternally better to know that now and to turn to him that he may be your God now. Right now while you have time. Time, I've said it before, is given to you in order to prepare for eternity. That's why you're here to get your soul ready to enter into the presence of God at the last day and to hear the wonderful words, not the awful words. The wonderful words enter into the joy of the Lord. The awful words depart from me, I never knew you. So Jesus is God and you need him to be your God. And secondly, by way of closing, Jesus is resting. We saw that in the text. And you need to, and you can, and you would love to rest in him.
Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Hebrews chapter 4 says, there remains then a sabbatismos, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Where do you find that rest? By resting from your attempts at good deeds to please a holy God and resting in Christ, his good deeds, his righteousness, his salvation purchased on the cross. Jesus is God, and you need him to be your God. He's resting, and you need to rest in him. Bow with me now, please. Father, thank you that in your goodness you have brought people to hear these words from the Bible and my meager attempt to explain them a little bit. But the words from the text, the words from the Bible, you've blessed people to hear your word today. Some of them have never turned to you, Lord Jesus, that you would be God to them and Savior and Lord. Have mercy upon them. Call them to yourself. Send the Holy Spirit like the hounds of heaven into their soul. Chase them up the tree that they may believe on you and find everlasting life. And thank you, Father, for making it so clear for us that even with our little pea brains, we can understand who Jesus is. Lord Jesus, you are our God, our King. We bow before you. In the name of Christ, amen.